I wanted to start uh, this morning in Psalm 130, and it goes like this. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, who kept a, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Who could stand if God kept a record of sins? What do you think is going through the psalmist's mind when he writes that? I mean, I would guess that uh, he is probably saying, I'm in trouble, first of all. Right? Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. But then what immediately occurs to the psalmist is, uh, you know, when, when it comes to being able to demand help from you, God, or demand a favor from you, I can't. I can't. Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? This awareness of the fact that no matter how good we are, we still don't measure up to God's perfect standard because his standard is perfect and we're not. Uh, one of the things that kids need to learn right off the bat is that they're not going to be perfect, right? Kids need to learn this uh, because at least, I don't know if it's true with all kids, but I think with my kids, and I remember growing up myself as well, it's just if I, if I made a mistake, I, I thought, what's wrong with me? What, why did I do this? And sometimes, sometimes there's sinful mistakes. Like I remember I got sent to the principal's office one time in my life. It did happen. It was when I was in kindergarten. I was on a bad road, folks, let me tell you. So this is going to turn into a, a real you know, charismatic sermon in just a minute. No, uh, I got sent to the principal's office because I was in line. You remember being in line? It's, it's like a kindergartner or first grade. You had to get in a single file line. And it was a big deal. It had to be straight. And, you know, you, but anyway, I was, I was standing next to this other kid. We were probably lined up alphabetically. So it's probably a kid. I, I can't even remember his name. But he was, he was teasing me. And he was teasing me and he was teasing me until I turned around and I punched him in the stomach as hard as I could. I, I, I'm going to confess to you, I'm still not sure if I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm not advocating anything there. I just, maybe that's a problem in my own soul. But, but you know, of course, what did the teacher see? She didn't see me getting teased, she saw me punching the kid in the stomach, which, you know, was wrong, and she sent me to the principal's office. Well, uh, I'm sure if my parents were to be here, or if they watch the sermon online, uh, my mom will probably remember this, and she'll probably half laugh and probably be really irritated still. You know, the, the teacher said, Ian, get out of here, go to the principal's office. And I, I didn't I didn't know much, but I knew going to the principal's office was a really bad thing. So what I did is I walked outside into the hall and sat down because I was afraid to go to the principal's office. I was afraid to go to the principal's office. So anyway, some time passes, and I'm just sitting there like my life is over. My, my, whole, my whole life is flashing before my eyes. You know, everything's so terrible and lost. And uh, the, the teacher finally calls the office. Remember those intercoms from school? Yeah, so she, she presses the button. Some, some of you, I think, already say, oh, no. She presses the button, and she says, uh, you know, you can send Ian back now. And they're like, Ian? Who's Ian? And... She, she steps outside the door, and she saw me, and she was so mad. She was so mad. I don't think she liked me. <laughs> she was so angry. 
And then I was really in trouble. Then I was really in trouble. And I, I, I don't remember everything that happened. I just remember she was furious. And they called my mom. And my mom had to come to school. And then I went to the principal's office with my mom. You know, things just were getting worse and worse. But actually, the principal looked at me. And she saw he was, he was just scared to go to the... He wasn't being, you know, rebellious or anything. He was just scared. So she said, I'm not so bad. And, you know, I, I, I remember how she responded to me. And I, she was only principal at the school for another year or two, I think. But I will never forget Dr. Morrison, who talked to me with grace and mercy and kindness. It's pretty amazing. But imagine in that moment, you know you deserve to go to the principal's office. And it's a scary thing, isn't it? It's a scary thing. And even if the principal is going to be really nice to you, uh, even, even if you believe that that might be true, it takes courage to go by yourself, doesn't it? It's a lot easier to go sit in the hall and hope that everything will turn out okay somehow. If you just ignore it long enough, it'll go away. Time heals all wounds, right? But as we've been in the book of Joel, I think if we need to see something here. There's a reason why the book of Joel is part of our Bible. There's a reason why it's here. God still intends to speak to us today out of the book of Joel. And uh, one of the things, let me just, this is the last Sunday we'll be in Joel. So I just want to take you back to the very beginning to start with. If you remember in the very beginning, God describes these three awful things that were going to happen to his people. Uh, they were going to go through a terrible plague of locusts, a terrible drought, and then a, a terrible invasion. And God says, look at what's happening and understand that our covenant that we have between us, you have broken it. You've broken it. And what happens when you've broken the covenant? Judgment comes. As a matter of fact, that's why uh, we hear this all about uh, th this day called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. God uh, is saying, what you are experiencing right now is, is the day of the Lord. In, in chapter 1, verse 13, he starts telling everyone, okay, you need to mourn, you need to wail, spend the night in sackcloth, uh, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders, to the, and bring them all to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. God's saying, the day of the Lord has come to you. The day when God acts to judge in a way that it is clear that God is judging. God is communicating something to us about who we've been and that something is that we haven't been who and what we're supposed to be. We haven't just missed the mark. We have, we've sinned. We've done evil. Uh, someone at the men's retreat reminded me, one of our speakers reminded me that the Bible is three main ways of speaking about sin. That word sin means literally missing the mark. You haven't done what you should do. You've done something else. You've missed the mark. There's our iniquities. We've done evil instead. 
It's not just that, oops, we didn't quite hit the center of the target. It's no, we, we turned around and we shot the guy next to us. We did evil. By the way, we did archery at the men's retreat as well. None of us shot the guy next to us. And then there's also this idea of trespasses. You've gone where you shouldn't have gone. You violated someone else's property, someone else's rights. None of these are, are mild sorts of things, uh, insignificant sorts of things. Missing the mark, you say, darn, I hope I'll get it next time. But, but it's, it's not just about, oops, I, I didn't quite make it. You know, I, I ran an eight-minute mile when I wanted to run a seven-minute mile. It's actually, I have decided to be something other than what God has planned for me. I've decided my way and not God's. I've, as Adam and Eve did, I've committed treason. I've said, I am God and you are not. There's no small, insignificant sin. And the interesting thing is God says, when I judge, when the day of the Lord comes, in the book of Joel, who does the day of the Lord come to first? This is the interactive part. You can, you can say something. Who did it come to first? It came to God's people. Came to God's people. Judgment came to Israel first. Is anyone surprised by that? Uh, doesn't it kind of seem like, hey, God, you know, I thought you were supposed to be on our side. I mean, I know we're not totally holding up our end of the bargain, but aren't those guys a lot worse than we are? You ever said that in your heart or maybe out loud to somebody? I know you've said it out loud. Let me tell you that. I know it because I am a parent and what happens when you have one kid and they do something where they get in a fight with another kid and, and you say, why did you do that? What will they say without fail every single time? Because he, right? So I know you've said it. I know I've said it. Oh, God, you know, I'm not that bad. It's this guy who's the real problem. I was watching a, a soccer game yesterday uh, and uh, there is... Uh, this play near the goal. Okay, my, my team, the Seattle Sounders, they're driving down the field. They get into the penalty box. I know some of you have no idea what any of these words means. That, that's okay. And, and you know, the, the ball goes up in the air, and there is a, a Seattle player, and he's right next to the goalie for the other team, and they're kind of jostling with each other, and he's pushing him back and pushing him back and pushing him back. And, and then the, the ball's bouncing around. Finally, the goalie grabs the guy, and he, like, pile drives him into the ground behind him. And, you know, I'm watching the game, and I'm, like, jumping out of my chair. That's a red card, ref! Come on, get it going! And, and the ref's like, you know, he thinks about it for a minute, then he calls, then he calls a foul on my guy! Right? And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm reading the, the, after the game, you know, the, the people who support my team are like, that guy, you know, somebody, he should be drug out into the street, and, you know, it's, every goalie from now on is going to be pile-driving people into the ground, and, you know, it's, it's the end of the world. And you go and you, you read the story from the other team's fans, and you know what they're saying? Well, that other guy was pushing him first. It's like, I think we got orders of magnitude differences here. That's what we do. That's what we do. They're, they're worse, God. But you know what? Sometimes it's, it's true. It's true. Are there any Hitlers in here? No. I mean, imagine, imagine living in Germany 
And you are, if you're somebody maybe like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? He's, he is a Christian pastor and he's standing up against the Nazi regime. And he's helping to sneak Jews out of Germany. And, and not only this, but eventually he comes to the conclusion, even though he's a pacifist, this is so bad, the only answer is, is to try and assassinate Hitler. If you've seen the movie Valkyrie with Tom Cruise, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of that conspiracy to kill Hitler. You know what happened to Bonhoeffer? Well, the Nazis found him and they put him in jail, and then in a concentration camp. And then, as the Allies began advancing through the German lines, uh, and you know, D-Day has passed, and there are only weeks left in the Nazi regime, they put him in a car, they start driving him and several others around Germany, trying to find a prison where they can keep him. And then our records get a little bit spotty, but about two weeks before the Allies make it to the prison where Bonhoeffer is held, he is executed. And aren't we saying, come on, God? <laughs> I, how could you let that happen? Hitler, oh, they're not, they were so much worse. How could you let that happen? Uh, we live in an agricultural area, don't we? A rural area. No matter what you do, uh, it's... It's boxes of fruit that are paying your check, isn't it? doesn't matter if you're pastoring a church or working at McDonald's or if you're an engineer. Someone, eventually your pay is coming from someone who grew some crops and sold them. Everything we do, it's connected to agriculture in one way or another. But it was even more true. These were agrarian societies back in the day. What do you think happened when locusts came and drought came? People died. People died. God's judgment came to God's people first. And maybe they had every right to say, God, look, those people are so much worse as they were dying. Why does God let that happen? Well, in chapter 2, about halfway through, starting in, in verse 12, God tells his people, I am not judging you for fun. I am not judging you because I'm just angry all the time. I'm not bringing this to you uh, just because I'm a big mean kid and I'm going to judge you until I'm done judging you. God's judgment always has a bigger purpose. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. See, God's judgment was to turn the people's hearts back to him. You know, one of the things that happens when societies become very prosperous, like ours, we start loving the prosperity better than the conditions that create prosperity. You get that? We start loving the stuff rather than the opportunity 
to make something out of our lives. Oh man, I feel that. I feel that every day. I think if we stop and think about it, every day is a battle to keep the main thing the main thing. Because it's so much easier to be satisfied with the stuff, with the house or the car, with the way people think about you, with the power to determine what our lives and what our future will be like. It's so easy to fall in love with that. And when God judged his people, he took all of that away. He said, you can't love that. It's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to make you holy people. Because what do we, what do we find? What do we find when, when we get this stuff? Let's be materialists for a minute. We live in a materialistic society. What happens when uh, technology is a great example? Uh, I don't know how many of you can relate to this, but uh, I like having the best phone that you can find. So as a matter of fact, let me grab it. I want to show you some cool stuff. So first of all, you know it's the best phone because it's unreasonably large, okay? And, and, and so phones get larger and larger, so everyone will keep buying them. You know it's the best phone, so, so the way you can unlock it, right? How many, if you got Apple, I'm sorry, first of all. Secondly, uh, you, you got that face ID, right? You just, you just look at your phone and it looks back at you. Maybe you should be concerned when your phone is looking back at you, by the way. But you, and, and it just magically unlocks. Mine has got this in-screen fingerprint sensor. Check this out. Oh, isn't that amazing? It's on dark mode, so you might even be able to tell it's on, especially if your eyesight's not great back there. You know, I got glasses too. But it's got that stuff. Look at this camera bump on the back. See all those crazy cameras? Guys, I got to tell you, I don't even know how to take good pictures. But, you know, I see the camera, like, oh, man, that's the phone for me. Like, people will see me carrying around, like, what is wrong with that guy and his giant phone? I'll be like, it's because it's awesome. <laughs> but you know what? You know what happens? Every year, they release a new model. You know what I want every year? A new phone. Now, for those of you who are sitting out there and you're judging me right now, you got something too, don't you? You got something too. Maybe it's not a phone. Maybe it's a Maybe it is a car, or maybe it's that house. Maybe it's that, that dream retirement you've been thinking about. And folks, none of these things deliver. A new one comes out just about every year. Whatever it is that you love, whatever it is that you want. You know what's great about God? He doesn't have any upgrades. There are no upgrades. He is the same yesterday today, and forever. When God's judgment comes, it's not meant to be God's expression of, I'm just so mad at you, and I'm going to tell you until you know. It's God's way of saying, why are you giving your life to these stupid phones and guns and cars and houses and the way people think about you? You're just going to want something more tomorrow. 
but not with me, God says. Uh, I love how C.S. Lewis describes heaven, describes eternity, maybe is a better way of saying it. Uh, you can see it in both uh, the, the Last Battle, the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, and also in, in his book, The Great Divorce. In both of these, he describes eternity as a range of mountains that you run up into. He describes eternity as a journey up into the mountains. Because it's not the mountains that will ever change in Lewis's vision. They'll always be there. They'll always be the same. But we will have an endless, we will have an eternity of exploring and discovering their glory. That's what God is like. That's what he's calling us to. That's why judgment comes to God's people first. Because it's not God saying, I want to squish you. It's God saying, I want you to know me and give up all of these lame, stupid things that will never satisfy you and just rely on me. That's not all that God's judgment is. But I think that's a big part of what Joel is presenting to us. And then let me take us to the very end of the book, to that passage we were just reading at the beginning. God is saying that, hey, I'm going to first judge you, and then after that, I'm going to judge the nations, the people who have wronged you. I'm going to call out sin for sin. I'm going to vindicate you in the midst of that. And it says, the Lord will roar from Zion, and he will thunder from Jerusalem. When I was in Southern California a couple of weeks ago on study leave, I think it was the first night I was there, uh, we had a thunderstorm. And the first thing that I did is I texted Kayla and I said, Southern California steals all our good stuff because it was raining down there and not raining up here. Now we got rain eventually, but it was still good to feel the angst against Southern California again. Did I ever tell you the best two days of my life were the two days I left Southern California? So anyway, uh, <laughs> let's move on. So... <laughs> But there's something magical to me about these thunderstorms. I don't know if you feel the same way. I mean, there's something. Uh, now, these days, I'm thinking, great, everything's going to burn down when we get a thunderstorm. But I also, I mean, it's, it's amazing. All that power in the sky, the lightning flashing, the sound of the thunder. We take our, our kids uh, as often as we can down to the air show in Miramar. And you know what my favorite part of the air show is? It's the sound of the planes as they fly by. It's so big and powerful. But something else happens when we come into contact with something powerful, doesn't it? The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. Yeah, when you see the lightning, I mean, I hope you don't go out into the middle of a field, a very flat field. I go, I want to see it flash all around me, you know, and maybe on top of me and in me, right? Because that would be stupid because the lightning is powerful and deadly and it shakes the earth where it strikes. Folks, when God roars and thunders, it's a frightening thing. He is big and he is strong. What if he's not paying attention? What if he thunders right over me? What if he doesn't like what I've done? 
But there's good news because in context, God has already thundered against his people. God has already roared against his people. The day of the Lord came to Israel first so that they would be called to repentance. And then the day of the Lord comes to the rest of the world. And this one is for judgment. And how do we respond? Well, it says, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. See, God, for his people, offers to bring his judgment out of the future and into the present so that it will become redemptive for us. Coming into the New Testament, can, you, can we apply this? Can we go and figure out exactly what this means and how this works? I think we can. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, the day of the Lord, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, has come to you already in the cross. Jesus has absorbed the wrath, the righteous anger that was stored up for your sin for my sin. And now there's no wrath left. We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has taken the day of the Lord for us. He's taken the future and brought it into the past. And now it is done. It's done. And we have peace with God. That word, before we leave Romans here, it's worth talking once again about justification. That word, uh, justified, translates a Greek word, dikaio, which is related to the Greek word, uh, dia, yeah, this, it's still all Greek to me, diakosune. Uh, no, that's, that's not right either. But it's related to the Greek noun for righteousness. And then it's been turned into a verb, dikaio, means to make, to declare righteous. When we confess our sin together, this is a good practice. It's a biblical thing that we do. 1 John chapter 1, anyone who says they don't have any sin makes God out to be a liar. And they are deceived. Right? We, we know we have been sinful people and we still repeat patterns of sin at different times in our life, even as we're being set free from it. But God has brought whatever punishment was due to our sin from the future into the past and taken care of it in Jesus Christ. And now what's left for you, you are declared not morally neutral, not, I guess, he's okay or she's okay. You have been declared righteous in Christ. So if you stood before the judge, and the judge reads the litany of, of sins and says, how do you plead? You would say, righteous. Because Jesus has died in my place, paid the penalty of my sin, and I now carry his righteousness. 
and your name is written in the book of life. So God will open the book and he'll say, yep, there's your name. You are indeed righteous. Which means that when God's final judgment comes at the very end, it won't be a moment of fear and dread for you if you are in Jesus Christ. Instead, we will find in that moment that the Lord really is a refuge for his people, a fortress that we can live in. Now, yeah, it's done. Jesus has, has died. He's paid the penalty of our sin. That's done. But we still feel like pretty sinful people sometimes, don't we? I mean, I do. And I don't want to wish ill on anyone, but I kind of hope I'm not the only one at the same time. Yeah, I still feel conviction for my sin at different times. That's not, that's not a bad thing, so long as it never obscures the fact that God has made me righteous in Jesus Christ. And now my job is to make my life match the reality of what God has done for me. To live up to who God has already declared me to be. That's what we do now. That's why we're not legalists. That's why we're not like, oh, you know, you sinned, you know, let's get out the baseball bat or something like that. You sinned, you can't be here anymore because we say, get back up and live the rest of your days up to what God has already made true about you. If you're on the men's retreat, you know I'm just stealing from Dr. Thomas in a lot of ways right now. But there are a couple of other things that will happen. First, let me tell you this. Uh, there is judgment coming for those who are unrepentant. God will judge sin because he is fair and he is just and he is righteous and he won't tolerate it forever and it really is evil. And for those who won't turn to Jesus Christ to have their sins paid for, they will need to make payment themselves. Egypt will be desolate Edom, a desert waste. Please don't equate these things, by the way, with the modern nation states, but rather with the enemies of God's people who refuse to repent. Because of violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. There really is judgment coming. And to see that can evoke fear in us, but it doesn't need to. Because we know the truth in Jesus Christ. That because he has died in our place, because we are justified, the Lord in the midst of his roaring and thundering is a refuge for his people. A fortress for the people of Israel. For his church. When we see the day of the Lord coming, we need to remember our repentance and remember God's graciousness and mercy. And then we can have our God as our refuge and stronghold. But the second thing we ought to take out of this is that God's coming judgment ushers in a new sort of prosperity for his people. God's coming judgment ushers in a new sort of prosperity for his people. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine. The hills will flow with milk. 
All the ravines of Judah will run with water, and a fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias, or the valley of Shittim, as the ESV says. It will water the desert valley. Now, again, living in an agricultural area that has been plagued with drought in these days, we know what that does to our life and our livelihoods, doesn't it? Some of us know it more directly than others. But I don't know if you've noticed all the groves uh, being uprooted and pushed out in these days. It doesn't come without cost, does it? Land where there's nothing planted on it brings in no return. Unless you put solar panels on it, I guess. Which, if I was a farmer, is what I would do. But what do I know? But what God is saying is that in that future, it's a future without drought. A future without worry about, will there be enough food on my table tomorrow? Will I be able to take care of my family? The hills will flow with milk. That might seem like a strange sort of thing to say, but I, I think what it means is that the cows will never stop giving milk because the harvest will be so bountiful that the cows will always have everything that they need in order to constantly be providing milk and, more importantly, ice cream forever and ever. Ian's translation. The ravines of Judah will run with water. How? How will all of this happen? A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and reach deep into the desert. All the way into the desert. So when you see God's judgment being poured out, I think that, and here's kind of our takeaway, I think that the first thing we ought to consider is, uh, as we talked about earlier in Joel, where do I need to repent? Are God's covenant blessings being withdrawn from me because I am blocking them by my sin? And if I am, what the only thing I need to do to restore that is to go before the Lord and out of my heart, not just as a matter of form, like, okay, I guess when this happens, God wants me to do this, but to actually say, God, I'm really sorry. This was wrong. I shouldn't be engaged in it. I need to give it up, and I promise to do my best to do exactly that with your help, God. That's our first response. Our second response is to remember that the judgment that we experience first is a precursor of the judgment the whole world will experience. And it needs, us to, it needs to point us in love and concern and mercy to the people of our world. There are sort of two ways to talk about God's judgment, right? You can say, you're going to hell and I'm glad. Maybe no one ever phrases it that way, but sometimes it's what we mean, isn't it? You're going to hell and I'm glad. Think God loves that? Yeah, I mean, that's an easy one, right? No, he doesn't love that. No. But there's another way. God's judgment is coming. Won't you join me? 
an escape? Won't you step into God's goodness and graciousness and mercy and not be found his enemy? And then the final thing, I think, is to remember that when the world rages, they've got nothing on you. Because the Lord will roar. The Lord will roar. What can, here's the interactive part again as we wrap up. What can the world take away from you? Shout it out. Things, Things sure. Your stuff, what else? Job. Your job, yep. What else? Your life, yeah. What else? Family. Family. Yeah. Would it hurt to lose those things? Yeah, let's not sugarcoat it. Yeah. We can't walk around and pretend like none of these things would hurt. But you know what we can do? So we can say there's a God who makes it right. There's a God who makes it right. Remember what he said to the people of Israel? This was a couple of months ago, I think. He says, be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For after the drought, he has given you the autumn rains. Because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers and Lord... Send us the abundant showers today, we pray. Until it falls, <laughs> we're going to ask you. And even after. And then what? The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And listen to what he says. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Remember, Jesus was with his disciples, and he says, if anyone wants to follow me, he's got to be willing to give it all up. Every last bit. Your land, your money, your family, all of it. And most people walked away disappointed. But Peter, I think it was Peter, turned to Jesus and said, Lord, we have given all of that up for you. And, and I, there's, it's like there's a question in that, right? Jesus said, you've got to give it up. And Peter says, we have, what's the payoff? And Jesus didn't say, you're so mercenary, Peter. You're just always asking me to give you stuff and make you promises. No, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one who has given those things up will fail to receive 30 and 60 and 100 times more. Folks, the worst thing that the world can do is take away our life. But we follow the God of resurrection. We follow the God who has the power to not just give it back, but to undo it at its core. Remember what happened to Jesus? Remember, they laid him in the tomb. And how did they know that he rose from the dead before they actually saw him with their eyes? Do you remember? The grave was empty. The tomb was empty because Jesus had risen to new life. God had taken everything that they'd taken away from Jesus and he restored it. And not only did he restore it, he glorified it. Remember how when Thomas says, I won't believe until I see, and Jesus appears in front of him, he's like, dude, I'm here. 
You should have known because I told you, but because you didn't know, I'm not giving up on you. I love you still. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to know for sure. Put your hand in the holes in my hand. Put your hand in the hole in my side. Are you surprised that Jesus' glorified body bore the nail marks and the spear mark? Are you surprised? I think you should be. Right? Do you normally go, man, you know what would perfect my body? Like some sweet nail holes right here. No, of course not. But when you've died because someone nailed you to the cross and you show up later and you show them the nail holes, what do you think you're doing? You're bragging. You're bragging. In a good way. Don't brag most of the time, okay? Just be clear on that. But this is what God does. And I'm alive. I have lost nothing to you. And those marks of shame you put on me are God's marks of glory. Folks, the Lord will roar. And when he does, we will know that we are his safe, saved people. Because he is a shelter and a fortress for us. We will know that God will make right everything that's gone wrong and all that his people have lost, not because we have earned it, but because of the greatness and the graciousness of our God. And we will be reminded that there is no reason any person needs to experience anything other than the salvation that was offered to us in Jesus Christ. So let's live like it this week. 